Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Um, We have been looking at different books of the Bible throughout the last year, and we have been trying to see the bigger picture of the story of the Bible and how each book of the Bible fits into that larger story so that we might better understand the role in the story that God has for us as his people. And we've had basically a mini-series during these last few weeks where we're trying to bring some closure to this table read series called Epilogue, where we've been tracing some major themes that you can see across Scripture. And uh, this morning, we'll be kind of going back to where we started and really rehearsing the big picture of what this story is. It's called The Mission of God. The Mission of God. Before we begin, would you take a moment and pray with me? Lord, would the the words of my mouth and would the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you? You are our rock and you are our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of my favorite movies of all time is Forrest Gump. Now, those of you who are in Gen X, like me, may be surprised to know that there are Gen Zers out there who have never seen this movie. I, I know, it's, it's shocking. Um, but it's one of my favorite movies, and it's not one of my favorite movies just because Tom Hanks is a great actor, which I think he is. I think it's a great movie because time and time again throughout the story of Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump is living a wholesome, simple life, and yet he unintentionally finds himself time and again caught up in events and in stories that are bigger than himself. It seems by accident each time, but time and again, us as viewers see that what Forrest Gump is doing is he's getting caught up in a story that's bigger than himself, and whether it's the war in Vietnam, or it's running through a practice field for the University of Alabama football team, and then eventually finding up, finding himself as a starved player, I feel more comfortable showing a picture of Alabama of the way they've played the last couple of weeks, but I'll put, I'll put that aside. <laughs> um, anyway, Forrest Gump gets caught up in stories that are bigger than himself. And the the question I want to ask this morning is, is part of the reason that we enjoy a movie like Forrest Gump so much, is it because we want something like that to be true of our lives as well? Do you resonate with the idea that you want your life to count towards something? That you want your life to matter? That you want your life to be a part of a bigger story? than what it may seem like in your most mundane and ordinary moments. Well, what 
the mission of God is, it, it, it is an invitation to view all of your life, every aspect of your life, as having a significant part in a story that's bigger than just you. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, there is a Bible scholar named Christopher Wright who says this about the mission of God. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. So what he's getting at is that the mission of God is not just a small theme that just happens to be a part of the Bible. What he's saying is that all of our lives can fit into this larger story. And a few Sundays ago, Pastor Joe talked about the mission of God a bit in his sermon on creation and restoration. And if you remember, he talked about how many of us have received or inherited a shortened, more individualistic gospel message. Many of us have understood that what the gospel is all about is this more narrow sin-salvation understanding of the gospel. Now, these are important chapters in the story, absolutely. But what Joe argued is that these chapters fit in a larger story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so much of what his sermon was about was the implication of seeing our lives in a story that has bookends of God's good creation where we are made in his image and restoration where he promises that he will renew and restore all things. That the sin salvation message is part of that larger story. But here is the question I have when I look at this kind of four-act paradigm of God's mission. Is it still possible for us to look at this and to see, okay, well, God is the one who creates. God is the one who redeems. God is the one who restores and renews it all in the end. And I guess the part I have to play is still fall, it's still sin. Now, that's not what Joe was communicating, of course, but I, I still think it's possible for us to look at this four-act paradigm and ask the question, where do I fit in this story? What's my role to play in this? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. There is a book called The Drama of Scripture by Goheen and Bartholomew that offers us a six-act story of God's mission. And here, here it is. Creation, fall. Act three, God's missionary people call. Act four, Jesus the missionary king. Act five, God's missionary people renewed. Act six, creation restored. So what you see in this paradigm 
is that they've intentionally thought through and talked about how is it that you and I, people that God has called to himself, where do we fit in this story? And so, of course, we begin with this third act today. God's missionary people call. We see this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This was read in our call to worship this morning. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God says to Abram. Pretty much out of the blue. Not because of anything he has done. I am going to bless you. I'm going to bless you and your descendants. But I'm going to bless you and your descendants, not just for you, but so that you will be a blessing to others. And maybe you've heard this before. It can sometimes sound cliche, but God calls a people to himself so that we would be blessed to be a blessing. Mm -hmm. Blessed to be a blessing. And to whom? Well, he tells Abram that all of the families on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. This redemption and renewal project did not just start when Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem. This redemption and renewal process started through God calling a people to himself and saying, be blessed to be a blessing to all the people all people groups, all families on the earth. Except that when we look through the rest of the Old Testament, of course, what we see sadly in the story is this. That Abraham's descendants have the same spiritual sickness than they did before this call. They are not able to fulfill this role that God had given them in the story. And that's when we get to act four with Jesus. What Jesus does is not just take care of the, the spiritual sickness problem called sin. He actually comes to fulfill the role of Israel. He comes to embody and to live out this blessed to be a blessing missionary call that God gave his people. And so Jesus is Israel's representative. If you've ever wondered why it is that the gospel writers don't just write the birth stories of Jesus and jump straight to the cross. If you've wondered why most of the gospels talk about Jesus's life, his ministry, his teachings. Why are most of the gospels about that? Because they are demonstrating to us and showing us. How Jesus fulfills and lives out Israel's missionary call. He is the true and the faithful one. His sinlessness is not just important because it means that there's a spotless sacrifice to take care of our sin on the cross, though that's true. His sinlessness is significant because he fulfills Israel's missionary role on behalf of Israel. 
And Act 5 of the story is that now he extends that same missionary call to us as his people. And we see this in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus' ascension. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It seems like two angels appeared and said, what are you going to do now? <laughs> Why are you standing into, staring into heaven? You have a job to do now. And what, what do we see in this passage? It's that God's missionary people are renewed. Something different has happened, and it's not just that people saw Jesus' ministry, but Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and they will have a new power and a new ability to live out the missionary call that God had gave them. And what is this new power and new ability for? It's for them to be witnesses. It's for them to be witnesses about Jesus as Messiah King, It's for them to be witnesses by their way of life, by the totality of their existence, witnesses of the king and his kingdom. That's his missionary call. And if you notice in this passage, the disciples still tend to think that this blessing is just for them. Because they ask him, when will you restore the kingdom to whom? To Israel. They're still inward thinking. They're still insular in their thinking. But Jesus turns them out. And he says, no. You are to be my witnesses. Not just here in Jerusalem. Not just to Judea. Not just to Samaria. But to the ends of the earth. So here we see the echoes of this missionary call. All the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. This redemption and renewal project is for all people groups, all families, everywhere. Uh, This summer, I had the chance to go on a vacation to Europe, and we visited this famous cathedral in Barcelona, Spain, called Sagrada Familia. And it's quite an amazing place. It's, it's beautiful. It's not yet finished. What I learned as I got to go on a tour of Sagrada Familia is that the architect Gaudi wanted to build something so amazing and so beautiful that he knew that there was no way that this could be completed in his lifetime. All he was able to build was sort of the first facade of the building. And so what architects and builders have had to do in the decades since, this has been in process for over 100 years. 
is they've had to use the designs of the architect to continue to build to complete this project. And it's still not done. In fact, depending on the angle, this is a very a beautiful angle. If you look at it from another angle, you still find scaffolding and you still find dust. There's still people doing dirty work. But in a way, this shows a metaphor for us that we are a lot like those architects and builders. There is a brilliant architect called Jesus who has inaugurated his kingdom. But we do have a significant role to play. We do have a significant role to build something as, that is beautiful, but sometimes there's scaffolding. Sometimes it's dusty. Sometimes it's dirty. But it's contributing to something beautiful. So what I want to do to begin to try to close this message this morning is to try to talk about a few implications of what it means that God calls us to be a renewed missionary people filled with the Holy Spirit, witnesses to the King and His Kingdom. What are some implications of God calling us into this beautiful grand mission? And I, I want to focus on three implications. Number one, God's missionary people are a cross-cultural community. We are ordinary and radical. We are filled with compassion and conviction. So first, we are a cross-cultural community. We are a cross-cultural community. Now, if we remember from Genesis 12 and from Acts 1, this renewal project is not just for one people group. When God calls people to himself and reorients the people of God around King Jesus, he invites people from any and every people group in the world to be a part of that, right? And so that has implications for what the church can look like in a city as diverse as Columbus. Listen to what a pastor in New York City named Richard Velodas has to say about this. He says, you see, God is not simply in the business of dry cleaning our souls. He's in the business of tearing down walls and creating a new family, a new way of belonging together. One could argue that the primary fruit of the gospel is not going to heaven when you die, but rather the miraculous new family that is created out of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Racial justice and reconciliation remain two of the most urgent matters of faith and public witness. In this respect, the cross of Christ isn't just a bridge that gets us to God, though it is that. It's a sledgehammer that breaks down the walls that separate us. If we are going to live into this missionary call, we need to be the kind of people who cares about the things that Rich Velodas talks about in this quote. If we are to be a cross-cultural community, that may mean 
in certain ways, humility, self-sacrifice, especially for those of us who come from European descent, descent that generally have, we've inherited certain privileges in our culture and in the church today. Are we willing to make sacrifices and, and to have enough humility to see how we can truly welcome those of us who don't have that descent, who don't have that privilege, that we could be a beautiful cross-cultural community? Because that is a witness to God's gospel and his beauty. Another implication we are ordinary and we are radical. We're ordinary and we are radical. So how is God's mission ordinary? Well, it's ordinary because we do things like host a neighbor for a meal. Or when a neighbor needs a cup of sugar, we offer them a cup of sugar. Or if we have organic agave syrup, we give a cup, we give a cup of that instead. Um, we might volunteer to take a co-worker's shift at work when no one else is willing to do it. Uh, we might be a curious question asker, a good listener. We might decline to choose the, the latest and greatest best gadget so that we can save up money to donate to those who are in need. These are not crazy radical things, right? They're ordinary. But at the same time, this way of living is radical when you think of it. Because when others are driven for success, success and wealth, we are motivated to serve. When others are seeking fame, we are glad to go unnoticed. Because we are know that we are seen by God. When others demand comfort... We lay down our right to comfort because Jesus laid down his life for us. So what is ordinary in a way is also radical. And we see this actually in the life of Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus says this in the midst of a conversation around John the Baptist. As a lot of religious leaders in Jesus' day are trying to figure out who these guys are. They're trying to understand their identity. They're trying to put labels on them. And Jesus performs miracles in the Gospels, right? He turns water into wine. He walks on water. He feeds 5,000. Those are pretty radical moments. But we have to ask, what is Jesus doing between these miraculous moments? Well, from a verse like this, we pick up that he is eating and drinking with people. He is building relationships with people. He is building relationships with the kind of people that the religious leaders of his day would label as immoral. He is so willing to associate himself 
with people that religious leaders in his day label immoral, that he is willing to be misunderstood. He is willing to be so misunderstood that he is grouped with people who are called gluttons and drunkards. He's called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, Jesus' ordinary social life was radical. It scandalized people. It scandalized the religious leaders of his day. They were very concerned with proper theology, with proper morality. Jesus was concerned with building relationships with people where he could look them in the eye and dignify them and say, you are more than the label that they're putting on you. You're more. I see you. I'm willing to spend time with you. Jesus was misunderstood how? Was Jesus willing to affirm everything that these folks were doing? No! 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 Jesus is the Son of God. If there's anyone who cares about upright living and holiness, it's Jesus, right? No, he's not affirming everything that they're doing. And yes, there are other places in the Gospels where Jesus says... Go and sin no more to people who are living sexually immoral lifestyles. Jesus is willing to say that, but don't miss this. Not until after he extends them mercy. The extension of mercy precedes a call to repentance. If we are going to be God's renewed missionary people, we need to live out this ordinary life of Ordinary conversations with people where we dignify them and we follow Jesus in, the, in this way of life. Because he embodies this truth from scripture. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. He is willing to be misunderstood if it means being faithful to his missionary call. And that is the call he would have for us also. Mm. Lastly, we are filled with compassion and conviction. Uh, The Australian pastor Mark Sayers has done a really interesting assessment of secular culture. And he argues that in the post-Christian West, That the secular culture wants to have all of the benefits of the kingdom of God without the king. The kingdom without the king. We see this. Actually, you can drive around different parts of Columbus and you might see that uh, businesses have painted on the side of their building, love thy neighbor. They're quoting scripture, right? They've painted on the side of their building the second half of the great commandment, love thy neighbor. That's not controversial at all in our contemporary culture. What would be pretty controversial is if those same businesses had painted the first half of the Great Commandment on the side of the wall, which is, love the Lord your God. 
How would that sit with people in the neighborhood in a city like Columbus? I, I don't know. Probably not the same way. So our secular culture wants the benefits of the kingdom without the king. But this is not new. Mark Sayers is a very insightful pastor in Australia, but someone like Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands was seeing this a hundred years ago then. Listen to what he says as he's sort of speaking on behalf of God. They love my creation. They enjoy the world which I called into being. They admire the wisdom which I made to shine as light in the darkness. They dote on love and mercy, the feeling for which I may glow in their heart. But me, they abandon. Me, they pass by. Of me, they have no thought. To me, they give no personal love of their heart. With me, they seek no fellowship. Me, they do not know. My personal converse does not interest them. They have everything that is mine, but they would have none of me. Abraham Kuyper was recognizing this king without a kingdom tendency a hundred years ago in Western Europe. And it's a, a fair critique of our secular culture today. But, lest we pride ourselves and getting this right while secular culture doesn't, there's another pastor named Brad Edwards who says this about evangelicals in our contemporary context. When I, I use the word evangelical loosely, as it has a very interesting connotation in our social and political climate today. But he says that we want the king without a kingdom. We want a king without the kingdom. And he actually tells the story of a friend of his who lives in an apartment complex where the HOA hired some tree trimmers to come in to trim trees in their neighborhood. And so the tree trimmers came, they had, they had made a contract with this tree trimming service, and the tree trimmers came, and they were trimming all of the trees in the neighborhood, except there was one tree that they wouldn't trim. And so... His friend went out and talked to the tree trimmers and said, why are you not trimming this, this particular tree? And he said, well, this particular kind of tree is a pear tree. It's a pear tree, and uh, in our contract with you all, it actually states that we're, we don't have to trim the fruit trees. That's not part of our job. He said, it's a fruit tree. Well, where's the fruit? Why wouldn't you cut it? I don't see any fruit. And he said, well, it's a pear tree. It's a pear tree that has been domesticated so that you can have the beauty of the tree, but you don't have to do the work of harvesting the fruit. And you don't have to do the work that when the, when the pears fall to the ground and they become all mushy, you don't have to do the work of, of cleaning it up. And so what his friend found out is that People can breed pear trees so that it doesn't actually bear fruit. And he uses this metaphor to say, this is actually a symbol of evangelicalism in our culture right now. We want to domesticate Jesus so that we can have the king without the kingdom. We want the beauty of a nice, enjoyable church 
without the duty of the hard work of the harvesting and the cleaning up of the mess. To be a people of compassion and conviction, it's messy, friends. It is not easy. It is not comfortable. But if we are not willing to do that work, we are domesticating who God is. Brandon Manning says this. He says, if we think of Jesus as the friend of sinners, the sinners are likely to be our kind of people. I know, for instance, that Jesus befriends alcoholics. My personal history and cultural conditioning make Jesus congenial and compassionate with selective sinners just like myself. I can cope with this Jesus. What Manning is getting at is that it's easy for us to understand how Jesus extends grace and mercy to people who are like us. But if we're going to live out this missionary call of compassion and conviction, we have to be stretched to see how this grace and mercy can be extended to people who might, it might be surprising to us, maybe even scandalizing to us. So we have a strong conviction, of course, that Jesus is the king. He is the hero of the story. And he has a particular way to live that he offers us in the Bible. But if our, com- if our convictions get in the way of compassion, then they're not true biblical convictions. We're making Jesus in our own image. I think the greatest barrier to us living out this compassion and conviction call that God has for us as people is fear. We live in a culture right now where leaders are using fear left and right. This is happening, political leaders are doing this, stoking fear. If you look at the headlines of most of the media outlets, you'll see a lot of headlines that stoke fear. Social media itself almost seems designed to stoke fear Because fear drives a lot of clicks. Sadly, church leaders use fear also to get people to do what they want. There are church leaders who use fear of the loss of comfort. Fear of being corrupted by people who are different than us. Fear of being made impure by those we might associate with. The beautiful thing is that God knows this about us, and that's why he inspired John to write these words. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If it isn't clear, this is why at Hope we have such an emphasis on emotionally healthy discipleship. That's not just a nice optional add-on as far as our vision and values as a church. We need emotionally healthy discipleship so that we are not imprisoned by our fears in ways that inhibit us to embody the compassion that God has for people. This is why we talk about things like practicing silence, 
solitude, stillness, Sabbath. Because it's one thing to know about the gospel and God's grace. It is another thing to position ourselves to experience his love and grace and mercy. For us to be able to know from the depths of our soul, we're safe. We're loved. It's okay. We can face our fears. So with that, let me take a moment and pray. God, thank you for the privilege that in your world, you invite us to participate, to have a significant role in your story. Lord, we know it isn't easy, but it is so good and so worth it. God, would you help us as individuals in this Hope Church to continue to grow, to be the kind of people who live out this missionary calling? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.